Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kate Carpenter, one of the hosts of this channel. And today we are talking to Dr. Laura J. Martin about her new book, Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration. Dr. Martin is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Williams College. And I got to tell you, I am so excited about this book and so happy to be talking with you about it. So Dr. Laura J. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate, for the invitation. I'm, I'm excited, like I said, to have you here, but I'm wondering if you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, where you studied, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor at Williams College. I teach classes on global environmental history, on environmental justice, and on conservation and climate change. And I um, have a somewhat unique background. I began my career in field ecology, actually, and I think that that, um, you know, comes through in the book. And I discovered environmental history when I was in graduate school. And the field really answered some of the questions and, and gave me tools for some of the questions that I was grappling with as an ecologist. So I had, I had begun my career in a laboratory studying invasive species in wetlands in central New York. And as I talked to state and federal land managers about their practices to try and control non-native invasive species, I just became totally fascinated at the ethical and normative language that they used around invasive species and um, the you know, entrenched ways that that land managers had in kind of thinking about how to restore these quite degraded wetlands. And so I became really interested in the history of ideas about restoration and ideas about wetlands and um, ideas about about ecology in general and 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 ended up with broader questions about the relationship between ecology and management. 
right at the time that I somewhat, you know, on a whim took an environmental history class and, and discovered a whole, you know, network of people thinking about the relationship, the historical relationship between nature and society and the intertwining of nature and society. And so I really, yeah, discovered a group of interlocutors, um, right at the time that I was starting to question these practices from within ecology. And I also was fortunate. I did my graduate degree at Cornell University and was um, really fortunate to early on become involved in a group called Historians Are Writers. That was um, uh, at the time run by Dagan Miller and Aaron Sachs, and they were very much um, focused on thinking about history as a writing craft. So that group also deeply shaped this book project. Fantastic. So you've answered this a little bit, but sort of how did this book project come to be? Was this a dissertation book or was this, this a different project? It was a piece of it is a dissertation. <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, so I, because I, you know, began my career and was publishing in restoration ecology and field ecology um, and evolution, evolutionary ecology, I um, had a, a, a unique dissertation where some of the chapters of my dissertation were in evolutionary ecology and some of them were in history of ecology. And I did my, you know, graduate, um, I did my comp exams in environmental history, history of science um, and evolutionary biology. So I had this hybrid, um, this hybrid dissertation, which really looked at restoration ecology from a few different disciplines. Um, so material that's in the middle of the book, kind of looking at the influence of atomic ecology on restoration ecology in the United States in the 1940s and 1950s was research that I did during my dissertation um, while I was at Cornell. But a lot of the, the book came later and is research that I uh, conducted when I was doing a postdoc at um, Harvard University in the history of science department. Um, so it, it, and the project really began when I, when I started my research as a graduate student, I was thinking about writing um, more narrowly about the history of invasive species management in the United States. And as I did that research, I really broadened out to thinking more generally about how environmental, about how ecologists and land managers and land owners were thinking about environmental harm and the relationship mm -hmm. between environmental harm and environmental restoration. Sure. As you mentioned, your, your background as a field ecologist really does come through in this book. Could you talk a little bit about how that background kind of shaped your approach? Yeah, my background led me, I think, to um, kind of dive into some. So there's no there's no one archive of ecological restoration. Um, and one of the, the tricky things about writing this book was deciding which archives to visit. And so the, the book assembles an archive of that um, kind of triangu triangulates across individual ecologists 
papers and archives, which are very fragmentary and held at a lot of different, usually university um, archives, um, as well as the archives of the Nature Conservancy, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service, and I think most surprisingly to readers, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. Um, but the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission was the main funder of ecological research uh, from World War II through the 1970s until the National Science Foundation really eclipsed them. Um, so I was um, looking at, at materials from all of these different archives, and I think um, an, an ability that my training in, in ecology gave me was to really dive into the field notes and laboratory books of ecologists and to think about um, how the, the stories that are embedded within those field notes and to, to, to look at the raw data for some famous papers in ecological restoration, for example, and to really think also about the, um, the professionalization and funding pressures that early restoration ecologists were under. And that, you know, is something that that historians of science and science and technology studies scholars really do um, day in and day out, thinking about how um, science is a social endeavor and how funding and um, interpersonal relationships right shape the doing of science. And I think that I was able to bring those insights um, in a way that felt very personal in that I had experience working myself with some of these same species, some of these same funding organizations. Um, and I ended up looking at a lot of archives that just hadn't been considered by environmental historians before and opening up. Um, I, I think um, one, one anecdote that I, <laughs> something that I learned is that um, male ecologists of the mid-century felt that their um, laboratory notebooks were a great place to stash their porn. <laughs> wow. I, I discovered three different porn archives um, within the archives. <laughs> I was working in, um, you know, because these were these are just books of volumes upon volumes of numbers and letters, basically, that um, <laughs> these scientists assumed that no one would ever look at again or that would never sure. get, you know, get archived. Um, but they did get archived because often um, when the, the ecologists um, that I was working on passed away, like their whole offices got boxed up. Mm -hmm. and sent to the university archives. And so that was an unexpected research finding. Um, That's hilarious. But yeah, but I, yeah, I do think that my background in ecology kind of pointed me towards some texts that would not have necessarily seemed obviously relevant had I not had that background. Other, sure. other, archival sources, you know, were more clearly connected letters um, between founders of the um, Society for Ecological Restoration about 
um, the need for it to, you know, create a new, a new journal or um, letters among uh, early um, Ecological Society of America founders about the need to establish new field sites and kind of complaining that foresters and agricultural scientists had access to what they considered to be, um, you know, prime, prime field sites. And ecologists did not have this sort of um, infrastructure. And so those, those sorts of archives were more obviously connected to the project, but then there were all of these um, fun and strange field <laughs> notebooks that I, that I found as well. Absolutely. I'm curious, you, you really situate your work at the intersection of environmental history and science and technology studies or STS. How do you see those fields interacting? I see it was a really, it's a really exciting intersection to be working at. And it's one that I have really seen grow, grow since I've been in, in graduate school. I think the, um, there are the the the, the conversations are flowing both ways between those two disciplines right now, and there's there's quite a few scholars kind of situated at that intersection because, in order to tell a history, the, the question is is how to tell a history of the environment, and what voices or data or sources to use when telling that history of the environment, and. Historians of science and STS scholars have really given important, have created important insights and written compellingly about the need to understand any sort of scientific information as historically and socially contingent. And so I see one of my kind of overarching projects in this book, but also in my research more generally, as questioning how to talk about the biological environment when our understandings of the biological environment are in flux and mm -hmm. always changing. And so I'm hesitant to you know, use a, you know, a recently published ecology article, for example, to make a, a claim about the history of a particular species. Um, like I talk about bison, for example, um, in chapter one of the book. Um, my, my kind of dual training in ecology and STS has, has taught me to um, really to use ongoing ecological research as a source itself to analyze rather than as a, a, a source of truth or um, it, it, it kind of, I think about myself as toggling between different types of evidence, mm -hmm. um, historical, scientific, um, and, and to think about, to think about the archives as a type of data that is not a hierarchy of that is that is uh, on par with other types of data. Sure. Okay. And to just so, be yeah, to just be really careful in the way that I um, describe ecological research and to 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 always put it in 
historical context rather than to sure. um, kind of kind of just use it to to make a claim about nature. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so with that said, let's talk a little bit about an overview of the book, kind of the themes that you dive in here. Um, so I'm looking at, you know, you, you break the book basically down into three sections. And the first section called Reservations um, really starts with some sort of early ideas of even sort of pre-maybe restoration. Could you talk through some of the, the major ideas from that first part? Yeah, so part one of the book is looking at spaces of restoration. And I begin the book with bison restoration as an early example of game restoration in the United States, which I distinguish from ecological restoration. So really the two questions that are guiding section one of the book are how did restoration become ecological? How did restoration shift from a focus on game species and species of economic value? Um, I mean, really large mammals and fish to a more, a broader conception of, of uh, restoring a group of species or, um, you know, chapter two looks at wildflowers, so species that are of aesthetic concern rather than economic concern. Um, how, yeah, so how, did, how does restoration become ecological? And then the second question is how do how did land managers, ecologists, and other kind of stakeholders carve out space for restoration? And what were their motivations in doing so? And different restorationists, unsurprisingly, had really different motivations for trying to carve out space for restoration and different visions of where restoration would be enacted. And I think that that is a really important, thinking about the history of where restoration is done is really important for the present and the future um, as, um, so the, the United Nations just uh, the other year declared this the decade on ecosystem restoration. And they are really, the um, UN environmental program is really pushing for large scale restoration projects across the to be conducted across the globe. And there's a lot of funding coming in right now to international environmental NGOs to do restoration work. And within the United States, the Biden administration has put forward a plan to uh, restore um, a massive um, amount of land area. And there's there's a question of, is that going to lead to a kind of fortress conservation model where more land already a a large percentage of uh, non-ice covered land in the globe is uh, under some form of legal protection for conservation and restoration. The last I looked at was 17%, but I believe it's it's even higher now. And NGOs are, are arguing for that number to be further increased. And of course, there's influential biologists like the late E.O. Wilson, who have argued that that number should be as high as 50%. Um, and so this is a very popular idea right now uh, within restoration and conservation circles, the idea of half earth. And so my book is in part trying to 
caution against the idea that all land is available for restoration and conservation, that indeed um, people live on land across the world and that historically restoration has been used as a justification to forcibly and violently remove people from their homelands. And so um, I, I end the book kind of coming back to that idea of place and calling for ecological restoration that is more just and that is aligned with social justice. And so I'm, I'm hoping that with this book, people start to think about um, restoration in small spaces, community-led restoration, restoration in landscapes of work and landscapes of uh, residential landscapes as well, and not just large parcels of protected uh, national parks and fish and wildlife land, for example. Sure. Yeah, I really, I mean, those, the connections throughout this book between past and present are really um, strong, which is of course true for probably all histories, but here they really feel um, very, very present and um, urgent, I guess, um, in some ways to, to continue drawing those connections. Let's talk a little too about the second part of this book. You mentioned earlier that um, for many people, the role of the Atomic Energy Commission is one of the most surprising parts of this story. And this second part really talks about healing ecological harm and interests in um, those pursuits, especially in a post-nuclear world. Could you talk a little bit about that second section? Yeah. So in the second section of the book, I'm uh, the kind of overarching question would be, um, how did this new destructive technology of nuclear weaponry change how people thought about environmental harm? And so there's been a lot of important previous scholarship you know, thinking about how how conceptions of the environment became global, how people became concerned with, uh, with a global environment rather than local environments. And two, two moments that people often point to are the detonation of nuclear weapons in the U.S. Southwest and in the Pacific, the um, colonized island, Marshall Islands, um, which were kind of commandeered by the United States in order to detonate um, dozens of nuclear weapons. And um, so, so historians have looked at how the fallout from these weapons detonations circulated across the world and led health scientists and concerned um, people around the world to realize that a local environmental harm like a nuclear detonation or like other types of pollution or eventually like greenhouse gas uh, um, burning could have a global effect and could have health consequences for people across on the other side of the world. 
And so that's one technology that, that people have considered in thinking about how environmentalism be became global. Another moment that people look to is the, um, the first kind of images of Earth from space. And that kind of image as, as being iconic and leading to a new sort of global consciousness or consciousness of global right um and with this with the second section of the book i am looking at those moments but with a different question rather than asking when did environmentalists conceptions of the environment become global i'm asking what were the consequences of these new technologies for how people thought about the possibilities and limitations of ecological restoration. And so I argue in the section of the book that through specifically through scenario planning for World War III, ecologists began to imagine types of ecological harm that are that that they conceptualized as irreversible rather than reversible. And I do see this, I don't, I don't want to overstate this because of course there's exceptions, but I do see this as a moment, as a real shift in ecology that takes place in the 1960s, specifically because of World War III planning sponsored by the Atomic Energy Commission and DARPA. So prior to the 1960s, the majority of ecologists believed that environmental harm was reversible, that as soon as a, a harmful action was stopped, whether that was plowing or clear cutting or um, the emission of a pollutant, that, the, that ecological communities would be able to heal themselves. That, you know, it might take a couple of years to a couple of decades, but that, but that species had the capacity to recover their populations if hunting was stopped, for example. And this is very much what both progressive era conservationists and early game restorationists believed that if, if, if nature was just given a moment to heal, then it would be able to heal. And it was not until the um, experiments both at, at nuclear detonation sites in the Pacific atolls, at um, Bikini and Anuitak atolls specifically, and also through these hypothetical scenario planning exercises that ecologists um, underwent in the 1960s, it wasn't until this moment that ecologists began to imagine scenarios in which an ecosystem would be so damaged that it could not recover on its own. And this is a huge, this, this pivot has huge consequence for how environmental management was conducted in the United States and across the world. And so I would say this idea of irreversible harm really dominates 
ecology and environmental management today. And there's this sense that we are, right, we are in the Anthropocene, human damage to environments is so extensive and so ongoing that environmental management must by necessity also be ongoing. Um, and so, yeah, and there, so there's other, there are other things that also lead to this shift in managerial mindset. I mean, the growth of federal environmental organizations and the change in their mandates that happens in the 1960s and 1970s with the passage of major environmental legislation also shifts the impetus to, or the, the, the impulse to think about environmental management as something that is intensive and ongoing. But, but yeah, the second section of the book specifically argues that this is a, an atomic ecology story and that ecologists' particular visions of doomsday went on to shape ecological restoration un until the present, and they, st they still do. And I um, specifically argue that the um, diversity stability hypothesis arises from this atomic work. And that's the hypothesis that ecosystems with a greater number of species are more able to withstand disturbances than species with than ecosystems with fewer species, whether that disturbance is a nuclear weapon or climate change. Sure. the The third section of the book then turns to sort of what well, we we might think of as more recent history, um, but I particularly appreciated this section because it takes ideas that have become they sort of seem. I don't know, obvious is the wrong word, but so standard to us now and sort of questions and, and lays bare their their historical origins. So I'm thinking especially of sort of um, rhetoric around invasive species, the idea of being able to purchase carbon offsets to mitigate um, ecological harm. So could you talk a little bit about some of the stories that we see in this third part? Yeah, so in the third part, I am thinking about the relationship between federal restoration efforts and the restoration, the ecological restoration efforts of environmental NGOs and the ways in which different institutions were carving out different roles within restoration and how that, how those different institutional ambitions and mandates end up shaping restoration practice in really strange ways that were not, not apparent to me when I began the project. And um, so want to give an example, um, you know, I, one of the motivating questions from early on in this research that I had was why, why do environmental NGOs manage for invasive species at all? And it does seem like such an obvious thing now. It's some, it's something that, that, the, that all sorts of environmental organizations, both public and private, have been doing since the 1980s. And it's, it's, it's pretty 
with some exceptions, it's pretty unquestioned and a lot of resources are put toward invasive species management. And so I was surprised to, you know, I think the, you know, the standard, the standard relationship between science and management and society that STS scholars argue against is that scientists discover something and then managers implement it, right? Um, the policymakers implement it. Um, and so like other STS scholars, I'm trying to tell a more complicated story between the production of scientific knowledge and the implementation or the way that in which that knowledge influences or does not influence policymaking and management. And so I realized in, in looking at the history of invasive species management that one of the motivating reasons that the Nature Conservancy and other land trust organizations start managing invasive species in the 1980s in the United States is that they are unable to manipulate invasive species. Uh, sorry, they're unable to manipulate endangered species because under the Endangered Species Act, the federal government is the only entity with the power to permit um, or themselves manage endangered species. And so uh, the Nature Conservancy, which was growing wildly in the 1980s, wanted to do something to manage their, their lands, um, but was not allowed um, through, the, through the Endangered Species Act, they would they would not be allowed to, you know, remove endangered species and propagate them and then uh, reintroduce them to their land. That would, that would not be permissible. Um, um, whereas the Fish and Wildlife Service was able to do that sort of management and they had control over um, the, the breeding of endangered species, the captive breeding of endangered species. Um, and so while, while land trusts were unable to touch endangered native species, they were, they had, there were no restrictions on what they could do with non-native species. And so they start to remove non-native species and kill non-native species in an effort to uh, manage for and promote the, the lives of endangered native species and rare species and charismatic species. Um, so that's one example. And I'm also in, in uh, section three of Wild by Design and just thinking about what it, what it means to, or what, it, what different insights we get about endangered species management when we tell a regulatory and management history rather than a legislative history. So the few, the few histories that have been written of the Endangered Species Act have really been focused on the text of the Endangered Species Act and the history of which Congress people supported it and um, did not support it and the kind of highest profile controversies around, um, you know, the snail darter, for example, but these, these species that were seen as impeding economic progress in the United States, right? So there's been a lot of scholarship on 
the rhetoric of of endangered species versus jobs, right? And I, I wanted to tell a different history and think about what the Endangered Species Act did to the on-the-ground management practices of scientists and managers in the Fish and Wildlife Service, who suddenly had to pivot from decades of being essentially a predator-killing service to being the service tasked with trying to restore some of the same species that they themselves had extirpated, that some of the same individual scientists had worked to extirpate. Um, and the most, you know, the most, the best known examples of those are um, the, the big um, predators like wolves and coyotes. But the Fish and Wildlife Service also, you know, really targeted all predators, including, and this was surprised, this I did not, despite, you know, being in this field for years, I did not realize how widespread their predator killing efforts were. They targeted owls. They targeted um, all sorts of, you know, I, I had, I did know that bobcat, that the big cats were also, bobcats and, and mountain lions and whatnot were also targets of federal predator killing. But I did not realize that some of the smaller ones were as well. Um, as well as rodents, anything that could, any species that could be seen as remotely causing agricultural damage, even though often there was no actual evidence that these species, that some of these species did predate um, agricultural species. And so, yeah, so suddenly with the Endangered Species Act, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service has to pivot from doing fundamental research on how to most efficiently kill these species to how to nurture and care for these same species. And so that, that really interested me. And I think it's an important moment in the history of restoration. Um, and then the other big thing that happens in the late 20th century that um, we take for granted today, but I argue in the book we absolutely should not take for granted is the shift um, from on-site restoration to offsetting. Um, as you mentioned, carbon offsetting is a huge endeavor right now in a huge global market. Anytime, you know, any any listener who has uh, taken a flight has probably been prompted with the question whether they want to offset their their flight. With, with by purchasing an, a carbon offset elsewhere, and it's not specified where that elsewhere is. And so in chapter eight of the book, I look at the history of the idea of offsetting, the idea of offsite restoration. So, and I specifically look at it through the case study of wetlands restoration in the United States. So under the Clean Water Act, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Environmental Protection Agency are um, able to, are, are given the power to regulate any sort of uh, development or damage to waterways, and that, which includes wetlands in the United States. Um, but how they do that is entirely at their discretion. And so the EPA and Army Corps had quite different visions of 
how they would try to minimize environmental damage of development projects. The EPA imagined that they would veto some projects, that they would ask developers to move, move development projects to new sites if they were going to damage important wetlands. Um, the, the Army Corps did not ever veto <laughs> projects, and they um, very much preferred restoration over asking a developer to move a project to a new site. And so restoration became this kind of tool that facilitated development. And, uh, you know, to, to put it more strongly, it, restoration was used as a loophole by the Army Corps of Engineers to allow projects that the EPA and certainly many environmentalists in the United States would not have been wanted, um, would not have wanted to, um, to be uh, completed. And so the Army Corps in the 1980s required developers to, if they were going to fill in a wetland to say, build a parking lot for a big box store, they would be required to build a wetland on site that was of the same size as the wetland that they had filled. And the justification for this was in part stormwater drainage, but also in an ecological argument. And um, however, ecologists quickly were quick to critique these new wetlands because they were often just holes in the ground. And they were built with, they, their sides were so sloped that a wetland plant species often couldn't um, establish themselves. And so you would have, you know, you know, holes that were devoid of life that were being um, counted by the Army Corps as wetlands that in compensation for development. And so ecologists and environmental NGOs saw this as a problem. And the Army Corps also saw this as a problem because developers were complaining that having to build these wetlands when they did not have expertise in building wetlands was slowing down projects and taking up time. And so it led to this unholy alliance between ecologists, environmentalists, and developers, where all three groups were advocating for offsite restoration. And arguing that putting money, if you it, if the Army Corps, instead of asking developers to build crappy wetlands on site, if they instead required developers to donate money to a restoration project elsewhere at a bigger site that had more species and was better established um, and was perhaps managed by the Nature Conservancy or another environmental organization, that this would lead to better biological outcomes. But what that does, the kind of, you know, perhaps unforeseen consequence of this is that off-site mitigation severed sites of harm from sites of care. And so that today, the kind of compensatory landscape for a Walmart parking lot is not on the site of the Walmart. It could be 60 miles away. 
it could be an entirely different wetland type than the wetland type that was destroyed. Um, and this idea that, that restoration for a particular environmental damage can happen elsewhere leads to the concept of carbon offsetting. It also provides some of the, and I argue in this chapter in more detail, it provides this conceptual leap to carbon offsetting where greenhouse uh, gas emissions in one place are compensated for with, um, with carbon sequestration in a separate place. It also sets up a lot of the regulatory uh, frameworks and the professional networks for carbon offsetting. So many of the same people that were involved in wetlands mitigation banking in the United States become involved in global, the global carbon offsetting market. And so wetlands mitigation really is the precedent and model for these other types of their other types of biodiversity and carbon offsetting that happen today. And the, the idea that, yeah, the idea that restoration is, um, that the, the site of that, that offsite restoration can compensate for environmental harm has really, is really shaping 21st century environmental management across the world. Mm -hmm. In some ways, that leads me to another question I wanted to ask about sort of the book generally, which is that I was struck by how much of a central role the question of justice or lack of environmental justice takes in this history uh, from start to finish, really. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about why, why that was such an important theme for you in this book. Yeah, it was an important theme for me because I, I, so I teach environmental his, uh, environmental justice, and I I grew up in an environmental justice community, and I didn't really I saw many environmental historians and um, environmentalists engaging in environmental justice, thinking about pollution. I'm thinking about the um, unequal distribution of environmental harms, both in the United States and globally, and how it is the case that communities of color and poor communities um, in the United States and around the world bear the burden of living in and working in polluted landscapes. I did not see a conversation or engagement with environmental justice happening within the ecological and uh, restoration ecology circles that I was working in and researching. And there seemed to be this real disciplinary divide and social divide between ecological science and environmental justice, where they were seen as, as, as separate disciplines. But a lot of the questions that environmental 
restorationists are grappling with are ones that have that they are at core, I argue, political questions, and therefore they are questions of justice. There's the question of how to repair environmental harm. And again, this is a this is a generalization, but I would say in asking that question, many ecologists have focused on have have framed that question as a technical question, as how to um, repair ecological harm. And fewer people have asked the question of who should repair ecological harm. And um, that is a, you know, a fundamental question within environmental justice. And there's also the question of where environmental harm should be remediated, which is also a question of justice. And I just yeah, so so that is a piece of what motivated me. I also just often often <clears throat> um, people concerned with the fate of non-human species think of solutions from a misanthropic view, and will argue that the only the only way, you know, EO Wilson, for example, EO Wilson's half earth um, proposal argues that people are essentially corrupt and the only way to protect species from people as a species is to set them aside entirely and to protect them from all people. And I've always found this argument to be deeply problematic because it flattens power. It argues that all people equally harm the environment and it pays no consideration to those people which who actively help the environment and, and seek to um, either better the environment or to undo other people's harm. And so I, um, you know, also just wanted to, to start to introduce environmental justice concepts to the field of environmental management and ecological restoration, and to argue that even though restorationists are often thinking about ecosystems that do not centrally involve humans, all ecosystems involve humans and any decision to intervene in a landscape is a political decision. Yeah, absolutely. Really that, that connects to one of the last questions I wanted to ask you too, which is that um, wild by design ends on a surprisingly hopeful note, I think. Uh, and, and you talk a, a, a little, a little bit about that in the context of the students you teach and sort of just the importance of having the possibility of hope. Could you talk a little bit more about, about that in the end of this book? Yeah. So it was important to me to, to end on this note of hope because although I am critical of the practice of ecological restoration throughout the book, I, I do believe in it as a practice. I began my career as a restoration ecologist 
And I, I hope that the book brings up a number of questions for practitioners and scholars of environmental management and restoration in thinking about how ecological restoration can be socially just. And I do think that restoration, restoration is a call to intervene in harm. And I think that the, and to, to rectify harm. And I think that, that that restoration needs to go alongside with a conversation about ending harm. Um, and that um, one of the, so one of the perils of restoration is that, and one, one reason that some conservationists do not like restoration is that they are worried that the argument that ecological damage can be repaired will be a, a, an excuse for various actors to kill species, to pave over wetlands, to, you know, if, if, if anything, if any environmental damage can be reversed, then anyone could make the argument that, well, someday we'll fix the, the damage that we caused um, and that will be possible. So we can just go ahead with this project. And so that, that is seen as the you know, peril of, of restoration, that it could be used as a, a justification for ongoing environmental damage. I have a more hopeful view of restoration. I think that I um, believe that already so much damage has been done to the world and we live in a world of ongoing damage that restoration really seeks to try and undo some of the harm that was intentionally and unintentionally caused to other species. And ideally, restoration can embrace a, a model of, uh, of coexistence and perhaps take a more offensive rather than defensive role in environmental management um, and to think about ways of, of creative collaboration with other species and creating habitats in which both people and other, spe other species thrive. Um, so so I, I didn't, you know, despite writing a book that really questions the fundamental tenets of ecological restoration and where it is practiced and who practices it, I don't reject the, the practice of ecological restoration. I think that it, it, a new generation of restoration ecologists is, is redefining what restoration is. And that even, even in the past, in the most problematic and, um, troubling moments in restoration, there were always people that were arguing for other ways of doing environmental management. Well, excellent. I, I think that's a pretty great note to end on. Um, and Dr. Martin, I have taken up a lot of your time. Uh, before we go, though, I do want to ask if there's anything new that you're working on that you'd be willing to tell us about. Uh, yeah, so really briefly, I'll, I'll just say that I am starting a new project. It's a, and it comes out of this book project. It's a global history of the 
production and application of synthetic herbicides. So some wow. of the okay. the most the most well-known examples would be 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, which are the components of Agent Orange. But there's many other herbicides within this class. And yeah, so I'm interested in basically how chemical corporations convinced consumers that weeds existed and that they should be killed. Wow, that sounds like a project I will look forward to just as much as I looked forward to this one. Um, So I'm excited about that. And I want to congratulate you on the new book. Thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation and getting the chance to read Wild by Design. So thanks so much. Take care. Thank you so much, Kate.